That is one of the great declaration songs that we have around here. I love that song. Let's pray. Yet not I, but Christ in me. Wow. Let's pray. Father, that's the truth. That's the truth. Thank you for the church and our opportunity to declare to one another the truth, to encourage each other in a gathering of God's people, to share what we believe to be true and know to be true and recognize, O oh Lord, in the work of Christ's mission, not I, but Christ in me. So we praise you and we thank you and we ask and invite the Spirit of God to move in our hearts today as we open up your word, O oh Lord. I pray that you would stir us to a new appetite for the glory of Jesus who died for us that we might live forever. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. So if you were to be asked the question today, what characterizes the state of our country? In one word, Hey, you know what? I'm liking you guys already. You're very, very ready to, you're, you're, you're responsive. This is fantastic. But it was kind of a murmur to me. I didn't really hear any clear words. Chaos, Chaos yeah. Fear, yeah. As I thought about the answer to that question that I wrote myself, <laughs> to myself, I thought discontent, discontent. And the other offer, the words that you've offered are, are true as well, but discontent, everywhere I look, people are discontented. They're unsettled, insecure. There's a loss of hope. People are weak. Weekend, and some have crossed into despair. And I'm talking about God's people. For many believers, this has been a real, this, this season has been a real stress test in the metrics of our contentment. I must say that as I prepared for this this morning, I, um, well, as I prepared this week for this morning, I must say how convicted I have been over this text in my own life. Because, um, the promise that we're looking at today is I can do everything. And that requires moving from the wilderness of discontent into the mystery of contentment. 
So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, please. Because the promise is I can do everything, and the question is, how can I do everything? The question we need to answer today. I'm going to look at four verses. Because there's a context to this promise, as I have been hopefully teaching you every single week, or whoever's been preaching has been teaching you every single week. There's a context. I rejoice greatly in the Lord. Now, in a a bit, we're going to talk about Paul's circumstances. I must admit, if I were in Paul's circumstances, I would struggle because I know, I'm, I know how I'm feeling right now. I would struggle to write, I rejoice greatly. But don't miss the phrase, in the Lord. That at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. This is the word of God. So let me ask you, has contentment completely leaked out of the hydrogen-filled balloon of your life this past couple of years so that you find yourself or have found yourself seriously, emotionally sagging and saying, I can't do this. I cannot do this anymore. Families divided previously together Your job's in jeopardy, trying to work at home and juggle the kids virtually on classrooms, in classrooms. You did the medical stuff, but you got sick anyway. And you got locked out of the stuff you were supposed to be allowed to go to. What's at stake here? What's at stake in our lives right now? Hope. Without which, there is no future in view. Our our view of God is at stake. Our view of God and his relationship with us and circumstances and situations that we're in, that's at stake. Our dependence in the wrong things for our contentment, that's at stake, for sure. Hoping that our circumstances or our situation is imminently about to change, but what if it isn't? A lesson I need to learn for the long haul is found in our study today. You and I need to insulate our hope, our happiness, our contentment from situations and circumstances. We absolutely have to. 
We have to get good at it. And this is what this is all about this morning. Here's how Paul assesses his outlook. The Apostle Paul, a promise that he is enjoying from the Lord. Verse 13, I, Paul says, you can put your name in there, can do everything through him who gives me strength. From I can't do this to I can do everything. That's a pretty big leap, isn't it? It's a pretty exciting leap. So what does everything encompass here? What did Paul actually mean when he wrote this available promise to the Philippians? There's a comic that's going up on the screen right now that isn't exactly what Paul meant. In fact, um, as I was studying for this and as throughout the ages we have abominated this verse, this promise, I was thinking, you know, maybe I should be making myself available to the Pittsburgh Steelers for a replacement for Ben Roethlisberger, the retiring Ben Roethlisberger. Because, this will be my resume, I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. Or maybe, what do you think about me challenging Vince Carter to a dunking contest? Writing him a note and saying, Vince, your reign is over. Because I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. How often, maybe not exactly like that, have we hauled out this verse, because it's one of the ones most of us know, because we love it, and we use it in the most inappropriate situations. Promises have a context. They relate to something. They relate to what's going on here. So we need to do some investigation if we're to understand what we're being promised so that we can be accurate. Because the promise is great. This promise is spectacular. But we have to, we have to use it in its intended way. So what's going on? Investigation, little background, little context here. Philippians, Philippi. You would have to read the chapter in Acts 16 to, to, to uh, get some history and, with Paul and this group of people. Uh, Philippi is a, was a place that was named after the King Philip of Macedonia, who was Alexander the Great's father, after the Greeks conquered in 356 BC, this part of the, the land. But by the time Paul got there, Rome had conquered in 42 BC. It was now a Roman military outpost. So they had lots of officials there, but not much merchandising. And because there wasn't much mercantile, there weren't very many Jews there, which is why it kind of was a Gentile um, ministry. And if you read on in Acts 16, you find out that, that the church began with one faithful woman who came to know Christ by the name of Lydia, the seller of purple from Theatira in Turkey, who had made her way there. And there's stories of 
Paul uh, or, or exercising a demon from a fortune teller and ended up being in jail for it. There's the miracle of the earthquake that rescued Paul in a jail and, and the Philippian jailer who came to know Christ and his whole family. Lots of great stuff in this particular setting and background. And then if the Philippines gave Paul repeated gifts to invest in his ministry. It's a, it's a great church. But Paul had received word, you know, some 11 years later, because this church was the first church in Europe, first church founded in Europe. Paul um, finds out 11 years later that they've been facing an extended period of time under stress. And the stress that they're facing is going to sound very familiar to us. And there was great possibility of discontent that was threatening their usefulness to Christ. Now, here's what was going on. I'll just summarize for you. I'll give you the text, but we won't take time to look at them. In Philippians 1, 28 to 30, in the letter, Paul acknowledges that they've been facing a lot of opposition and persecution, conflict. There were people coming to know Christ. That always produces conflict in the way of thinking what is right and wrong and truth and all of that. So they were facing this kind of opposition and conflict. In 2 Corinthians 8 verses 1 to 2, we find out that the Philippians were, uh, these, this group of believers were struggling in great poverty. Because when they came to know Christ, they were being kicked out of their trades guilds because they would not bow and worship the whims and will of the emperor, losing their jobs for not bowing to the emperor. Finally, in Philippians 2.14 and 4.2, we find out that there was lots of conflict in the church as well. There was disunity and division in the church, church unrest. I would suggest to you that this text comes more alive than ever to us right now. These are the kind of very things that we are facing. Same thing, opposition, conflict, loss of livelihood, disunity, vision. So that's the church. What about Paul, who has just written, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. Paul, Paul is in lockdown under Roman house arrest. But he was being productive. And there's a reason we're going to discover because of how Paul was spiritually wired. And he invites us into that. So chapter 1, 12 to 14, chapter 4, verse 22, talks about the, pro the nature of the productivity of Paul in spite of the fact that he was in house arrest in Rome. Paul lived in what was called an insula. We have a picture going up right now. They were disease infested. This is a second century insula preserved in Rome called the Insula dell'Ara Cielli. A little bit of Italian there for you today. In the shadow of the Vittoriano. But these insulas, this is a second century, so Paul wasn't in this one. It wasn't built yet. 
but it was exactly the same as the first century. They were like tenements. They weren't nice. <laughs> they were for the poor. That's where he was. He wasn't in some cottage on a beach enjoying his time on the Adriatic which is where I would write, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. <laughs> That's not where he was. In fact, none, notice, notice this, none of the people of God's eye, neither the church nor the apostle, were in grand circumstances or situation. For the most part, we kind of equate blessing of God with great circumstances and situation. We rarely see that in the scriptures. Sometimes we do. But more often than not, the situation, the circumstances, from an outside observer would say, well, you must have done something wrong. God must be displeased with you. Because things aren't going very well. It's into this moment that the Philippians send Paul a gift, a monetary gift, for which he is very, very grateful and thanks them, but realizes this is a really critical teaching moment. This is now perhaps the third gift that the Philippians have sent to him. They've tracked him down again because he was all over the place. and They had no Facebook thing going on. Where's Paul? No, they tracked him down and found out he was in Rome in house arrest. But he said, I want you to all know that this gift, although I'm thankful for it, is not what makes me content. And he proceeds now to teach them about contentment, which is now the context of this miracle promise that we're going to look at. Paul now teaches us Keep in mind, he, he, Paul, was, Paul was very, um, very uh, particular about the connection of money and ministry on purpose. There were many charlatan philosophers in the day when Paul was ministering. There are many charlatan philosophers in our day who were shaking people down for money and Paul did not want to risk at all the glory of Christ or the veracity of the gospel by getting it mixed up with money. And so Paul is very, very deliberate <clears throat> about his teaching, excuse me, about his teaching and money. He does not want them to think, anyone to think, that he has gone around funding, founding churches so that he has a group of people who will fund his life. Now let's understand this something. Ministry doesn't make money. It requires money. That's the truth. But Paul wants to know, want, always notes in his teaching on money. His encouragement was around money always was about the spiritual value to the giver and thanksgiving to the Lord by the receivers. That was always front and center with his teaching. 
But never did he ever want the people of God to become dependent on the material, including himself, under house arrest in Rome. Now keep in mind that the Romans weren't taking care of Paul. They could care less whether Paul lived or died. House arrest was, you better hope you have some friends who will take care of you because you'll starve if they don't. That's the situation for Paul. And yet when he gets, an offer, when he gets this offering, which he desperately, I'm sure, needed, he says, that's not what makes me content, people, but thank the Lord. And I want to teach you something. So here it is. He wants to teach us why contentment matters in our lives, how it relates to the promise that Paul commends in verse 13, and how we can have it. Contentment, I mean. Because you show me a man of discontent, and I will show you a man who's never contented. And in a world of unpredictable circumstances and situations, can you see how constant contentment would be healthy? Okay. So I want you to start in verse 11. Let's look at verse 11 and note what Paul says. I am not saying this because I'm in need. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. That word learn caught my attention. Because contentment in every and any situation is not natural, is it? It's not natural. So Paul says, I have learned something. I'm passing it along to you. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. And we get a hint on where Paul learned this from chapter 1 in, in, at the beginning of his letter. Look at chapter 1, verse 20. Paul says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, here it is, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now what Paul learned is further expounded on, as you turn your Bible just over to the next letter in Colossians, where he's writing to the Colossians about Christ, the supremacy of Christ, and he writes this in verse 16 of chapter 1. <clears throat> For by him, Christ, <clears throat> all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Paul has discovered a rock-solid truth foundation in his life that's a starting point for everything else and his entire vision of his life and the world around him. And it is this. Paul has discovered, Paul has learned that the purpose of his life is to bring glory to Jesus, is to exalt in his body, whether he lives or he dies, in other words, whatever circumstance, 
He is to bring exaltation to Jesus Christ. In other words, in everything that he does, as people look at his life, they will see in how he reacts the glories of Jesus Christ. They will see the goodness of Jesus. He will make Jesus look good to those who don't know anything about the Lord. That's what he, that's his vision. That's his, because he says, because I understand I'm made for the Lord. That's why I've been made. I've been made for him. What if circumstances and situations were no longer able to occupy a prominent place in your life? What if in your emotions or your thinking or your goals, what if like Paul you realize that you exist no matter what your circumstance to bring to exalt Jesus Christ in your imagination, in your desires, in your, in your uh, thinking, in your situation. Last week we learned that we pray to that end. That's why when Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, he first said to them uh, when they pray that they should hallowed his name, our Father which is in heaven, hallowed be your name, or holy is your name, recognizing the lofty reality of God. Paul says, it is, I am invested in the purpose of my life, which is to exalt Jesus Christ in everything. I have learned that I'm, I must not be ashamed and I need to have sufficient courage to fulfill my purpose let me ask you a question, beloved. Does discontent bring glory to Jesus Christ? It does not. A discontented Christian can hardly make Jesus look glorious. And so, I believe what Paul proposed here for us and learned is that you have been made for Christ, not for comfort and convenience. He says, whether life or death, my goal is to glorify Jesus Christ. Now that's step one, that's a starting point for us. That's a rock solid truth foundation. You have to know your purpose. And every one of us who know Jesus Christ have the very same purpose, to exalt Jesus Christ. Whether we eat or whether we drink or whatsoever we do, we do all to the what? Glory of God. Christ. But there's more. Because many of you are saying, hey, I, I, as God is my witness, I have accepted that purpose in my life. I've learned that too. I've learned that my purpose is to glorify Jesus Christ. But I'm still struggling with discontent. What am I missing? Let's keep going. Verse 12. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. 
I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Wait a second. There's a secret to this? Why didn't somebody ever tell me that? Well, Paul is telling us that. So there's something we've been missing. So, Piper helped me in my thinking on this. I think it's, it's fascinating that Paul says, I know what it is to be in need and, in plant, in, in, in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret look at, of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. If I were, to, if I were writing to tell you that... Um, I've learned how to be content in every and any situation, I would probably say to you, because I've learned how to be content in rotten situations. Because it really doesn't make any sense to say, I've learned how to be content in plenty. Anybody can be content in plenty. We're all content in plenty. We're all content when we're well-fed when we have everything's going tickety-boo, we're always content then. So why in the world would Paul say, I have learned to be content when I'm well-fed? I've learned to be content in plenty. It doesn't make sense. That, there's no secret to that. Or is there? Well, I would insist that the Apostle Paul, under the supervision of the Holy Spirit didn't waste words. I believe that everything he wrote was vitally instructive. And I would further suggest that probably in terms of this context, the hardest contentment of all is to be found when we have much. Now what am I talking about? The key challenge here for us, especially in the West, is, is the sheer volume of earthly niceties that we enjoy. And we've got to admit, we are incredibly surrounded by all kinds of plenty, well-fed, well-clothed, well-housed, well-employed, with money left over, lots of amusement. I think that Paul is pointing to us and saying, you are in a most precarious position for contentment because all of these niceties in the modern West are in competition with contentment in Christ alone. If we're honest with each other, and I think we're being honest today, we find our contentment in all the things that I just listed. And very little of our contentment is found in Christ. You know how I know that to be true? 
just take away some of that stuff. Start taking it away, which is what we've experienced over the last couple of years, taking it away, taking it away. Are we content? We are not. What's the secret? Look, at Paul, Paul gives us the secret in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 to 9. But whatever was to my profit, he's talking about before he came to know Christ, but whatever, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever is, what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them absolute garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Do you see this? This is the secret that Paul has learned. This is what he has done in his life. For him, the promised miracle of what he's going to state in verse 13 of doing all things starts with mastery over all things. It starts with switching all the price tags in your life. It, it starts with looking at everything in this world and considering it or counting it as a liability compared to the greatness of having Christ as Savior. This is mind-blowing to me. This, this, is, this is awesome stuff. The center's secret of Paul's teaching here on contentment isn't found in plenty because he has a secret stash in his life that doesn't have any connection to the material at all. So in other words, he can say, I'm contented in plenty or, 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 or want because the plenty or the want has no effect on my contentment in Christ. None whatsoever. I, I am content in Christ because of who I am in him and who he is to me so that the circumstances of the situation cannot affect me toward discontent. We have been, for the most part, training ourselves to be content in material blessings. That's what makes the context here of giving so important in learning this. And then he says, in verse 21 of chapter 1, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He says, I don't want to live on this earth one second beyond my usefulness in exalting Christ. I don't want to live one second beyond that. I don't, I don't want to live one second past my usefulness in exalting Christ. I don't want to. And dying is gain. 
Because in dying, the believer goes immediately into the full expression of the presence of Christ, unobstructed. We are a win-win people. You understand that? We've been singing it all morning, but the Bible's telling us we're a win-win people. To live is Christ, to die is gain. It doesn't get more win-win than that. that that's, the realization of that brings incredible contentment. The switching of price tags uh, on, on, the, on the material. That's why John writes, you know, love not the things of this world. Love not the world or the things that are in this world. It's a bad emotional investment. It's a bad spiritual investment. Why? Because these things are passing away. They can't bring you contentment. Only Christ can bring contentment. And so Paul focuses here on a, a, a sort of a propositional statement by saying this, you have been saved to desire and value Christ more than anything and to find and enjoy fullness of contentment in him alone, communion with him. He has made me, Paul says, to consider every other thing a net loss in my life compared to the incredible gain I have by having Christ. That's what prompted Jim Elliot to say, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's, that's really what Paul is, is teaching here. That's, that's where Paul lives. Jim lived there. He's like, you're not a fool to give up the things you can't keep. To gain the one great thing you can't lose, Christ. Edmund Chan, who spoke here a few years back, some of you remember, Singaporean guy, great brother in the Lord, told me when, I, when he was with me, and it wasn't to brag, it was to make a point, that twice in his life he'd given away everything. Twice. Just to discipline himself in terms of contentment in Christ alone. Now, there's no scripture that insists you do that. There's no command that you must do that. That's just how this gripped him. He wanted to discipline himself, that his contentment would be in Christ alone and was concerned that some of the things that he had might in fact be in the way of that. So if you were like me as I was studying this, chronologically, I was at the point where I was in somewhat close to despair because I was still saying, hey, I can't do this. I can't do this. I'm not this. How can I do this? And it's to that question that his re readers would have had, and we do as well, that Paul now answers with a miracle promise. This is the context. 
It's not that you can shoot hoops better than anybody else or run faster than anybody else. It's what you can do with respect to contentment in Christ alone. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. This is a miracle promise. You and I have been enabled, in other words, we have enabling power given to us by the Holy Spirit at salvation to be able to have contentment in Christ alone and have our lives disconnected from our situation and our circumstances. This is not something you can do in the natural. This is not something that lost people can do. This is not something that even unbelieving or believing people can do in their own strength. You won't be able to find contentment in Christ alone to the degree that Paul's talking about here in your own strength. You will not. But the promise that miracle promise that's offered to us here is the answer. Yes, I can. You're throwing up your hands saying, I just can't do this anymore. I can't, I, I can't, live, I can't live like this anymore. I, I'm frustrated. I'm discontented. I can't do this anymore. Yes, you, you can actually have a complete reversal in your life to find yourself in these present circumstances entirely content in Christ. Yes, you can. Because Paul says... I can do and you can do everything. Now let's understand all things. But the, the word here that's usually translated all. I mean, it means many times it's translated all things or everything, but the vast majority of times in the New Testament, the word that's translated here everything is just the word all. And I lean toward the idea that Paul was really talking about all I've just said. I can do all through him who gives me strength. Because you're reading this, you're Philippians, you're reading and saying, I don't, I don't know how I can do this. Yes, you can. Because of Christ and the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. Do you see how cheapened Many of us have misused this text to actually lead us to the exact opposite of what the promise is all about. We have so many times said, well, I can do everything, sort of to lead us toward material priorities when this is to actually wean us from material priorities so that we will have a priority in Christ alone. It's the opposite thing. If you get this wrong, you miss the point entirely. We are freed entirely from material ambitions so that you can glorify God with your unshakable generosity, Paul says to the Philippians. Out of your poverty, you can give because that's not where you find your contentment. And then he says, and oh, by the way, my God can meet all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. So don't worry about you being taken care of. God will take care of you as you're glorifying him. As you're trusting in him, as you're finding your contentment in him, God will take care of you. So to loose ourselves from any other affections than Christ is the mystery of contentment here, the secret of contentment. 
that Christ empowers to happen. That you and I can do the impossible. Be content with or without. And by the way, this is further evidence of the sanctifying work of God in your life. I want to go back one more time. We're just about finished here. I want to go back one more time in Philippians chapter 1 and show you in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, what a beautiful, beautiful prayer he states here. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. My Philippian beloved, he says, you are demonstrating the active work of the Lord in your life through the fruit of your righteousness, which is a generous gift that I don't need for contentment, but I do need it. And you are demonstrating that God is really at work in your life, really growing you, that you are fully trusting in the Lord and not in the things that you have. This is... This is... Such excellence of life. Paul refuses to find contentment in the gift, although he's grateful, and it helped him. And the Philippians refuse to allow the material to hold on, to have a hold on them, and found their contentment in investing in the gospel. I can do all things. So what if situations and circumstances no longer had a hold on your contentment. Would that be a great way to live? I, I want that. I, I, want, I want what's offered here through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is offered. Because that's the promise. And that's the context of the promise. Father, thank you for your word as we carefully tried to pour through it today and center your promise in its context and content that we, your people, might correctly ask you for what you've promised, that we can correctly anticipate you giving us what you've promised if we ask because you've already given us the power for this. So Lord, we want to be content in Christ so that the setting around us can no longer steal our joy, our security, our confidence, our hope, our vision of the future. No, no, that we might be people who are contented in Christ to live as Christ, to die as gain. That's who we are. And what a joy it is to be people of that identity. So thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. You know what I've observed is that we as believers 
kind of in this whole North American t- context have been suckered into contentment in lesser affections. Things like money, medicine, mu- amusements, masks, freedom, rights, monarchs, the military. Well, none of those things in and of themselves are the problem. They get in the way of our affection for Christ if we're not very careful. So the promise here is contentment, real contentment, that insulates you from circumstances and situations is found in Christ alone. Everything else will lead you to discontent. We've experienced it. We are experiencing it. So what do we do? The promise is we are enabled by God. We have the power through the Holy Spirit for changes to happen in our life. And what Paul did is switched all the price tags. I think that's what we have to do. We need to go home and switch all the price tags of everything with respect to our time, our interests, our investments, everything. So we can find our place contented in Jesus Christ alone. It's the best place to be. Father, thank you so much for kindly showing us a better way to live that shuts out all of the things that can interfere with our joy and our confidence and our security and all those things, Lord. If our confidence and contentment is in you alone and you are more than worthy of our trust and belief that you can bring us to contentment. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.